You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR Radical Radio. How have you been? How was your weekend? I'm your host, Paddy. I'm not joined for the introduction by Alice, Ella and Claudia this week, but you will be hearing their voices later on in the show. Ella is talking to an associate professor from the University of Sydney about the global reaction to the coronavirus. Professor Adam Cameron Scott's research looks into how the governments and multilateral organisations react and interact with each other around events like pandemics and He was also on the team that developed Australia's pandemic preparedness plan, so he's going to have a very interesting point of view. Later in the show, we're going to hear from MB from Queering the Air. They speak with Tina Dixon and Renee Dixon about the Queer Sisterhood Project, which is a refugee-led and peer-run support and advocacy program aimed to provide a space of community and belonging to queer refugee women. First up, we're going to hear from Rilke from the Refugee Action Collective in Queensland about the protests in support of the refugees detained at the Kangaroo Point Central Hotel. Just before that, we're going to hear Rally Around the Drum by Archie Roach. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence, but you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. Act my brother before me I'm a tent boxing man like our daddy before us Grabbing all around Gippsland I woke up one cold morning Many miles from Fitzroy And slowly it came dawning By Billy Deach I was employed Rally round the drum, boys. Rally round the drum. 
every day and every night, boys. Rally round the drum. Hoisting tin falling, top falling. Billy says, now beat the drum. Rings out across the showground. And all the people come. Then Billy starts calling. Step right up, step right up, step right up, one and all. Is there anybody game here to take on Keith Snowball? Rally around the drum, boys. Rally around the drum. Is there anybody game here? Rally around the drum. Sometimes I try to dream in Yeah, we put on the show Sometimes I find a hard man Who wants to lay me low Sometimes I get tired But I don't ever grouse I've got to keep on fighting Five dollars ever a house Rally round the drum boys Rally round the drum Every day, every night boys Rally round the drum Like my daddy before me I set him up and knock him down Like my brother before me I'm weaving in your town was Archie Roach, Rally Around the Drum. And now we're going to hear from Rilke from the Refugee Action Collective in Queensland about the protests in support of the refugees detained at the Kangaroo Point Central Hotel. Rilke is a 28-year-old activist and advocate, originally from Nam, Melbourne, who moved to Queensland to help fight against the Adani mine. She has worked with Democracy in Colour and currently is helping organise refugee solidarity actions in Mianjin, Brisbane. I started off by asking Rilke if she could tell us about these refugees and how long they've been detained at the Kangaroo Point Hotel. So there's currently 120 people being held in detention in a makeshift prison in Kangaroo Point Central Hotel in the middle of Brisbane 
Mianjin. These people are asylum seekers who have every right to seek safety here. And they've been a prison, in prison for over seven years, um, brought here on the Medivac le legislation. So some of them have been in Manus Island or Nauru. Um, but yeah, they were brought here on the Medivac legislation, which means every asylum seeker at Kangaroo Point has an existing medical condition. And those who are immunocompromised, this actually means it could be a death sentence because of the conditions they are facing in the hotel. Um, some of these people have partners and children in community in Australia. So yeah, while we've been facing conditions of isolation over the past couple of months, often we've been with our friends or family, yet these people have been facing those types of conditions for over seven years, isolated from their families and friends. And the cruel fact of it is, while they're confined, it is not actually in accordance with COVID-19 safety precautions. And the close quarters that they're in is actually adding more danger to an already deplorable situation. There's been three suicide attempts in the past three weeks. Um, so yeah, we need to continue to demand freedom for these innocent people. And do they have access to hand sanitizer and stuff like that? Because um, I know the refugees at Mantra Hotel in Melbourne, they've uh, experienced similar conditions. And Yeah, I mean, they don't have um, enough access to hand sanitizer. They're um, in really close quarters with each, each other. So if one of them were to contract the um, virus, then, you know, they would all be um, at risk. And also they've, they're in really close... Um, uh, situations with the Serco guards, the people actually hired to um, keep them imprisoned there. And um, there has been a Serco guard that did test positive um, last month. So, yeah, that just the the fact that they're all in there together and then there's not um, safety precautions for the people who are going in and out, um, it, it is putting them in a really dangerous position. Now, over the past couple of weeks, refugee activists uh, have been fined and one person arrested. Could you tell us about the demonstrations you've been organising? Yeah, so um, the asylum seekers who were held in NAM in Melbourne and in Kangaroo Point in Brisbane, um, over two months ago, they organised a month-long silent protest and some of the people also went on hunger strike. So um, this, you know, gained a lot of awareness for um, refugee advocates and activists and um, inspired us to plan an action on the last day of their month-long protest. Um, due to its success, the people inside and the people outside have continued to protest weekly at 4.30 till, till 5.30 on a Friday. Um, and the people imprisoned in the hotel in Kangaroo Point come out on their balcony between 4.30 and 5.30 um, every day. Things have been escalating and more and more people are coming. New tactics are being used. Um, there was a swarm here on the same day activists in Melbourne, Nam, occupied the roof of the Mantra Hotel where the asylum seekers are being held. And, um, you know, they did a massive banner drop, um, yeah, to raise awareness of the innocent people in prison there. Um, yeah, so we've had to get really creative due to the police and most of the protests um, have involved you actually having to physical exercise at the same time as kind of exercising your human rights. We applied for a legal protest when the picnics were allowed, um, when the, um, the COVID restrictions were um, expanded, uh, um, minimised. 
Yeah, um, but, but this was denied and we weren't even given a reason. And so we went and we attempted to picnic on the sidewalk and were told by police that it was not a legitimate picnic place. So, yeah, the discretion given to police in deciding what law we've broken or how we've broken the law does make it a bit more difficult. It is a real worry to see these coronavirus laws being used to target peaceful protesters. In Melbourne, um, in, in um, the, the same the same situation with a car convoy, which you imagine is completely COVID-19 proof, uh, was targeted yeah. and, and the protesters fined and Chris Breen was um, uh, uh, arrested for incitement. So how, how are the fines and the arrests affecting you? Is it galvanising the protesters? Um, well, I guess the possibility of fines and um, the fines that have been given haven't had a huge effect on af- activists. Um, we have a lot of legal information available for people to help them avoid unnecessary fines. And um, many of the people who have been fined um, in the protests at Kangaroo Point have challenged the police's interpretation of the law and stood their ground in what they know is right. Um, And many have been prepared to face these fines or it's not a very big risk um, to take to attempt to secure the safety of the lives of 120 people but yeah I mean obviously you can see um yeah the police using their discretion to um target activists which is what we saw with the convoy and you know what we're seeing at our protests too. And do you know if it's possible to contest these fines in court? Um yeah that's a huge reason why people are not greatly affected by these fines is that they are definitely challengeable Um, The law states you're allowed to leave your home for exercise, for volunteering and for recreation that cannot be undertaken at home. Um, So we're there to make people who live in the area aware that there is a prison in Kangaroo Point and to stand in solidarity with the people inside who have stated it means a lot to see us there. Um, We're always practising safe social distancing and protesting is not listed as a non-essential activity So we do have a right to peaceful assembly and political communication. Um, But yeah, the police will lie to you and they are allowed to do this. So sadly, you do risk a fine due to the police overusing their power to politically suppress. Um, But we have a great legal support network and there are many lawyers willing to help us. Also recently in Queensland, Magistrate Anthony Gett determined that protesting is legal under COVID-19 restrictions. So, yeah, all of these fines are challengeable in court and it is highly unlikely that they will not hold up. And, yeah, it's, it's scary to think that, you know, that, that, that people are trying to take away that, um, our ability to congregate as a group. And even if, yeah. if it is within these socially distanced ways, uh, have, you, have you got anything, any digital campaigns or anything like that uh, we can get involved with? Yeah, we do. Um, it, uh, we've just got one that we're um, getting up and running. It's a um, support letter campaign, which will be launched in the next few weeks. Um, it's there to counter the government's argument that it's not in the public interest to keep these people imprisoned. Um, so we're asking anyone who has the ability to help these people, either with accommodation, financial help, um, employment, if they were to be granted a visa or just English language lessons or even friendship and socialisation. So um, then you can write a letter to the case manager 
to each um, asylum seeker and show how you are willing to help them. So, yeah, if anyone listening is um, able to do that, please get in contact with our um, Refugee Action Collective Facebook page, either in Melbourne and Brisbane, and um, you, we can add your email to the email list. Just want everyone to keep, you know, talking about these issues and keep these people in their mind, um, sharing their stories, sharing their protests, informing people about what's going on and, yeah, following the pages, sharing, sharing the protests. That was Rilke from the Refugee Action Collective in Queensland. And you can stay up to date and show your support by following these Facebook pages. Refugee Action Collective Brisbane, Refugee Action Collective Melbourne, Eyes on Offshore, and Refugee Solidarity Brisbane Mianjin. Next up, we have Boom by Nairi. That was how we did it Shooting up a hundred Driving without a permit Flight line any minute And we never give a damn Cause we're up in a palace Full of hello heaven Late night 7-Eleven Screaming in the fucking lot Trying to get each other shot Yeah, remember that's how we did Don't forget my name Tequila, drag each other under the table, hit the bottle, hit the ceiling. Never coming up for air, yeah, we kept on believing. Gonna not be then. How was your Eve? Yeah, you were my Adam. Some gave everything we got, now we don't even talk. I remember this, what we did. Don't forget my name. Everything turned out alright. 
Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. Call 9231 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Foundation is a 3CR supporter. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone.
That was Come On Home from the Lajardu Sisters. Last week was the World Health Organization's annual assembly. Held entirely virtually in the midst of a pandemic, it was unprecedented in many ways. As expected, the focus was on the global response to the current COVID-19 pandemic, and much attention was given to the motion to hold an inquiry into coronavirus. First drafted by Australia, the motion ended up passing unanimously, but not without opposition. And the event saw tensions continue to rise between Australia and China, and of course between the US and China. While a world health crisis can unite people, and we've seen a lot of examples of this, it can also be very political, or at least the response to it. And we've seen many countries take a nationalistic approach as we scramble for limited resources or compete to come first in the vaccine race. So this week I spoke with Adam Kamrat-Scott, an associate professor at the University of Sydney, specialising in global health security and international relations. Adam's research and teaching explores how governments and multilateral organisations cooperate and interact when adverse health events such as pandemics occur, as well as how they respond to emerging health and security challenges. He's spoken much about the need for collaboration in responding to a health crisis and the politics surrounding it, and he was part of the team that developed Australia's pandemic preparedness plan. So he seemed to be the perfect person to unpack the events at last week's assembly. The decision to hold an inquiry into coronavirus has passed, but much of how it will play out remains to be seen. So I started by asking Adam to explain what we do know. Yes, this issue of the investigation has ended up becoming very controversial, as we've seen um, from the public statements of various different governments. What has ultimately been agreed and negotiated at the World Health Assembly was a investigation that would look into the origins of the virus and in particular the focus there will be trying to track down where the virus emerged from at the moment we are assuming that this coronavirus um, has emerged like we have seen other coronaviruses that it has come probably from uh, an animal the host animal of bats and then it has spread to an intermediary host another animal before it has then crossed the animal-human species barrier to infect humans. Um, there has already been a number of scientists that have looked at the, the genetic makeup of the virus and have ascertained that it is natural, that it wasn't a man-made virus. But obviously we need to find out exactly where is the natural reservoir for this uh, particular pathogen so that we can try and prevent another outbreak um, once we get the pandemic under control. In addition to that, at the insistence of the Chinese government, the uh, investigation will look much more broadly into the operationalization of the World Health Organization's response, as well as the proposal to look at how other governments then reacted or responded to the WHO's warnings. And the resolution was co-sponsored by 137 countries in the end, um, but the draft was initially proposed by Australia. Um, the Australian government were second only to the US when they announced their intentions to push for an inquiry over a month ago. Why was Australia the instigator here? I think the reason why arguably Australia uh, has ended up pushing for this was that we had the advantage through fairly successfully um, preventing the spread of the coronavirus in Australia. Uh, which meant that our healthcare system and our society wasn't overwhelmed, um, that we have seen happened to so many other countries around the world. That has effectively given us some further space uh, to push for an investigation into what is arguably one of the most straightforward requests that there could be. Unfortunately, this particular investigation became politicised when the Chinese government in particular saw it as, a, as an attack on, on them, 
when in fact um, we have had these investigations with previous global health emergencies, uh, the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic, and then again in the 2014 West African Ebola outbreak, investigations were launched while those crises were underway to try and identify what happened and how the outbreak started. So this request from the Australian government or the proposal from the Australian government was really quite reasonable. Um, it's just that the way it was received um, has then sort of, and the, and the reaction to that um, has then prompted its politicisation, which is regrettable. Um, there's already been questions asked, obviously, and raised as to whether or not the Australian government could have done it differently had they then gone and developed uh, a coalition of people behind the scenes of, of other like-minded countries. But ultimately, um, the impetus for this has arisen from the fact that we really need to try and identify where this virus came from so that we can prevent another recurrence of it. And as you said, the crisis has become really politicised and tensions have already arisen. What's the importance of political diplomacy in tackling a health crisis? Well, diplomacy is, is critical uh, whenever you're dealing with international relations. And I think one of the challenges that we confront in this particular area is that you need diplomats that are well-versed in the health and technical side of things, as well as your sort of standard diplomacy as well. Um, and, and that requires a special skill set, really. Um, we've seen... Uh, a number of instances where um, the World Health Organization has really uh, been under pressure around particular topics. Um, you may recall a number of years ago, there was a new treaty that was developed, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and that was also highly politicized and very controversial at the time because you had big tobacco producers that were working with governments trying to prevent the adoption of that particular treaty. So um, in that instance, just like this one, um, diplomacy is really critical to seeing things uh, progress. And the decision to hold an inquiry has been made, uh, but what it'll look like is still to be determined. And a couple of aspects are particularly contentious, one being when the inquiry will be held. Um, so while sooner might be better or at least more accurate, China has asserted they won't hold the investigation until after the pandemic. What's a likely outcome here? I think the likely outcome is that there will be uh, further diplomatic negotiations to try and overcome these position statements that governments have adopted. The reality is, is that if an investigation isn't commenced until after the pandemic is over, realistically, that could be a couple of years away, unfortunately. Um, and the level of accuracy, if it is left to be delayed, if it's delayed for so long, um, will be really problematic and, and the usefulness of it will be um, certainly put into question. Um, so this investigation really does need to launch sooner rather than later. Um, and in addition to that, we really need the cooperation of multiple countries uh, in order to see it conducted um, appropriately. At the moment, uh, what the has been proposed is that the investigation would be conducted by the International Oversight and Advisory Committee, which was a new committee that was established uh, to oversee the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Program uh, that was launched or created after the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Um, that committee currently comprises seven individuals, um, people from various different countries. When we've seen previous investigations launched, they've usually involved a team of around 15 people, so double the size of the IOAC at the moment. So we may see that the, there will be a desire to increase the membership of that particular committee um, for this specific investigation, or they may set up a separate investigative team 
uh, to conduct the inquiry as well. Uh, the main issue is really that governments have insisted that um, it isn't. It, while it is WHO-led, uh, they would like to see it independent of WHO. Um, and so for that reason, um, we probably will see a, a push for independent prominent health experts to be on the committee uh, doing the investigation. Yeah, as you said, another point of contention is how the investigation will be conducted or what's meant by independent and impartial. WHO have been accused of bias towards China in the past. Is there weight to this claim? This is really um, quite an odd accusation for me, who was who studied the World Health Organization for the past two decades, um, principally because for a number of decades, one of the biggest criticisms of the organization in the past has been that it has been too beholden to the United States and that the US government has held far too much influence and sway over the WHO. So to hear um, this accusation levelled at the WHO that it's really in China's pocket um, is really quite unusual. Um, Certainly, obviously, the People's Republic of China has grown in diplomatic and economic strength uh, from where it was a number of years ago, and it has become a superpower. Uh, And for that reason, as you can appreciate, any superpower, their voice is, is listened to and it's heard. But I suspect what has happened in this instance is that uh, the WHO was, and particularly uh, Dr Tedros, um, the Director General, was really focusing on trying to keep China engaged and sharing information. Um, The WHO previously had criticised the Chinese government in 2003 over the SARS outbreak and the Chinese government's attempt to hide that outbreak at that time. Uh, And I, I suspect what has happened in this instance is that The Director-General thought that he could um, encourage China to remain engaged, sharing information, um, and thereby assist the international community by praising the Chinese government. Um, But that doesn't necessarily equate to being in China's pocket. So uh, the investigation will get to the bottom of that, though, and they will obviously be looking quite closely at the correlation and connections between the Chinese government and whether or not there's been been any undue influence exerted. And in the event it is discovered that there has been, um, we can expect that there will be further comments made by member states. And the inquiry wasn't the only topic of discussion at the Assembly. Um, How close are we to a vaccine and what needs to happen to make one that's both widely available and free? This is really one of the biggest challenges that's going to confront the international community at the moment. Uh, We currently have around 100 different companies working on different vaccine candidates. Um, and we have around six to eight of those vaccines that have entered phase one or phase two clinical trials. They normally would be allowed to go for one to two years before we would start to see phase three clinical trials, which would normally take another sort of one to two years to see them uh, finally, where they would show that the vaccine is safe and efficacy. Obviously, in the middle of a global crisis, uh, companies and governments are going to be looking very closely uh, to reduce that time frame. That's not to reduce the safety protocols that are in place, but they will be looking to try and expedite the development of the vaccine. Once we have one or two different vaccine candidates, though, that are proven to be safe and efficacious, the next challenge really is manufacturing them in enough supply that they are able to be then uh, a vaccination program can be implemented. And one of the big challenges there, obviously, is that we have over almost 194 countries that have been impacted by the pandemic. 
And so you're going to have 194 countries that are going to be seeking rapid access to the vaccine um, at the same time. That will present a challenge because we don't have global manufacturing capacity uh, to produce enough vaccine all in one go. Uh, in fact, if we are able to piggyback on the vaccine technology of influenza, which is one of the most well-advanced um, vaccines with global manufacturing capacity, our, our global manufacturing capacity for influenza vaccines is currently around 1 billion doses per annum. In the event that you have to provide two doses of a vaccine to confer immunity from the COVID virus, then you would reduce that number by half. And that means that there's going to be an awful lot of countries and an awful lot of people that are going to be without a vaccine, arguably for the first couple of years of um, this crisis, unless we are able to rapidly mobilise and increase that vaccine manufacturing capacity. So it's a challenge. Um, and it's one that we really do require international cooperation on a massive scale in order to be able to accomplish this. In addition to that, there's obviously the international property rules that normally govern the development of pharmaceutical products. And there has certainly been a push by world leaders at the World Health Assembly uh, to effectively suspend or bypass some of those um, rules in order that we can rapidly produce the vaccine and make it freely and widely available. But there are understandably also some countries and governments that have expressed some reservation, uh, given that uh, companies would normally be looking to make a profit from the development of a new vaccine. So there's a bit more work to be done around this. Um, certainly the World Health Assembly passed the resolution or the resolution that was adopted has stressed the need for this vaccine to be made available freely and widely as a global public good. Um, and hopefully we will see that happen. And finally, while the inquiry will hopefully help us learn valuable lessons for the next health crisis, uh, we're not out of this one yet. Uh, where do you think we should be focusing on going forward? The focus really at this point um, has to be, while that work on research and development is underway, the focus really has to be on uh, helping and supporting low and middle income countries around the world. We've seen a number of high income Western countries get hit with the virus first, and we've seen how they have been affected. Um, what we are now starting to see and hear and learn of is that the virus is now starting to make headway in a number of low and middle income countries around the world. And those countries don't have the advanced healthcare systems that places like Australia and the United States and the United Kingdom enjoy. What that means in practice is that the virus will not only likely kill a number of people um, and cause further human suffering and uh, morbidity, but it is also likely then to um, become endemic and it will then continue to circulate in those populations unless we can put in place public health measures uh, and strengthen things like disease surveillance to identify uh, cases and then conduct contact tracing. So those systems currently aren't in place in a number of countries around the world. And what that means then for those countries like Australia is that even in the event we're able to control and even uh, eliminate the virus from our shores, it means that we can continue to see the introduction of the virus with any incoming international traveller. The challenge then, or, or what that means in practice then, is that um, Despite all the efforts that the Australian people and the Australian government may take, we can continue. We, our health security is reliant on what other countries do as well, because this is a pandemic. 
So we really need to um, change the approach that has occurred at the moment, whereby the response has, has been very much on very national lines. So every country has effectively looked internally to um, put in place measures to protect the domestic population. And that's completely understandable and entirely appropriate. But equally, what we now need to do as an international community is look more broadly to how we support each other, because what our neighbours do is going to have an impact on us. That was Adam Comrade Scott, an Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, specialising in global health security and international relations, discussing last week's World Health Assembly and the inquiry into coronavirus. Now we're going to go to a track from Sunnyside. This is Red Hot.
Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government, managing this together. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Alice and today we're going to be listening to the second part of an interview done by MV from from Queering the Air. MV speaks with Tina Dixon and Renee Dixon about the Queer Sisterhood Project, a refugee-led and peer-run support and advocacy group aimed to provide a space of community and belonging to queer refugee women. Tina and Renee have been together for a decade now, and not just as partners in activism, but also real-life partners and in everything they do. They have lived experience as queer refugee women and are currently both PhD candidates at the Australian National University and are, of course, advocates and activists for the rights and inclusion of LGBTIQA plus people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds. MV begins by giving us more information around the Queer Sisterhood Project and talks in more detail about a video animation put together by Tina and Renee showing the stories from refugee women about their experiences, their realities, their sexuality and gender. You can watch that video animation on the Queer Sisterhood Project Facebook page. We're only playing the second part of the interview today, so please do head over to the Queer in the Air 3CR page and listen to the full interview. 
you can go to 3cr.org.au slash queeringtheair to get that one. In the second part of my conversation with Tina and Renee Dixon, we speak about peer-run support and advocacy, responses to COVID-19, intersectional analysis, and their current and upcoming projects. The Queer Sisterhood Project, a peer-run support and advocacy group, was established in 2018 to provide a space where queer women from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds can feel a sense of belonging. A video entitled Being Queer and Refugee promotes the project, and it was premiered at the Queer Displacements Conference in November last year. It's incredible. And the voices of the people speaking their truth is so visceral and moving. And I just want to state some of the comments that that really sort of resonated with me and really highlights some of the difficulties, but also the wonderful experiences of the, the queer people that were in the video. These are some of the statements. Isolation within their own cultural communities, push to come out and perform queerness, difficulty to hold their partner's hand in public. However, there's an opportunity to live free and a freedom to come out, safety, that there's people like us, ability to share stories and that you are not alone. And if you and others made it, I can make it too. I think I almost shed a tear as well during that video. It was very well done. So please discuss the production of the video and the opportunity you had to speak with the queer people whose voices are heard on this video. For us, it was very important to to co-create this video with the girls uh, and women. And we, initially we wrote the text, how we want to tell our stories. And after we collapse all of these texts and create from our eight stories, coherent narrative, as you've seen one phrase, another phrase, it was from the different stories, but they continue the one story. Um, and we decided to record our voices after we created the final document. Um, we chose to go down the path of uh, digital animation for several reasons. First of all, some women are still sick in asylum, and so it's um, you cannot show your face publicly. But also kind of thinking long term, um, we didn't want for people to have their face associated with the fact that they have sought asylum in Australia for the rest of their lives, because some people may choose at some point not to discuss those experiences. A lot of people assume that refugee is a part of your identity, but for the girls who is in our queer sisterhood group, we understand that it's not our identity. Refugee status is just an experience. Yeah, so the, the cartoon was the collaborative work, this example of the core design on every stage of the process, you know, from text, as Renee said, and up to, you know, choosing the theme and how it's going to be drawn. It was launched at the Queer Displacement Conference and most of the women who took part were in the audience. So I think it was um, a special moment to be able, you know, to see that final work in in a way on a big screen um, at the conference and to see the reception of it. And we're very grateful to the grant from the channel, formerly Karen Giveout, um, funder that made this, this cartoon possible. And at the same time, we had so much material um, while we wrote it, um, our stories. So 
we split it and published the brochure for service providers with more information in depth how they can help queer refugees can make their services more inclusive. And the brochure was published with the financial assistance from Link Incorporated. It's such a powerful experience. The video is so powerful. I think I watched it three times to get the full impact of it. And towards the end, it was just became this real powerful narrative. And I think the, the way it was sequenced was obviously cleverly done. Initially speaking about people's sort of more difficult obstacles that they had to overcome. But towards the end, then saying, I'm not alone. I have safety. I have freedom. I'm able to participate in a group where I feel comfortable. I mean, that's what is implied. And I suppose that's what really spoke to me. It's really powerful. And if people want to get access to this video, where can they get information? People can find us on Facebook or Instagram using the hashtag Queer Sisterhood. So we have links there to video um, and also to the brochure that is available for download and printing if services would like to. So Queer Sisterhood has now been running for two years. And last year was the inaugural Queer Displacements Conference. So what's in store for this year and what are your plans? So after several years of us doing this support work and advocacy work, we've come to realize two things, sort of two our lessons. One was that unless you are institutionalized, in a sense like you are, you are a registered organization with you know ABN and things like that, it is really easy to erase you, to silence you, to forget to include you into important emails or to consult with you when you who are non-specialist organization in the issues of LGBTQ asylum are producing some policy documents on this area. And the second one that while we do see a, a growing amount of different organizations and individuals who want to be allies to LGBTQ refugees trying to do some work very often that work is done in isolation and not um, by engaging um, the LGBTIQ refugee community as equal partners in this work. This wasn't an easy decision, but we've come to realization that for our support and advocacy to be effective, um, we need to register an organization. And so on the 27th of April, we've registered the non-for-profit called Forcibly Displaced People Network which is um, going to be the LGBTIQ refugee-led organization to provide support for LGBTIQ people in forced displacement, um, as well as to contribute to advocacy efforts and human rights work on the issues of LGBTIQ asylum. The uniqueness of Forcibly Displaced People Network, or FDPN, lies in the fact that we do start from the premises of the lived experience. Um, three people out of four on the board come with the lived experience of LGBTIQ forced displacement. We're also going to be very soon recruiting an advisory group to the organization that will also be comprising of LGBTIQ plus people who experience forced displacement. We're planning on providing some support like we did, for example, during um, and are still doing during the COVID pandemic, but also engaging in advocacy efforts as well as different training and, and production of, of research materials. Um, when we are still as LGBTIQ people 
back in our countries of origin, it is really often that we hear that this is still not the right time for LGBTIQ equality to be achieved. So for example, people say, well, let's have women's rights first, or let's have those rights first, and then maybe in some time we'll be ready to sort of do your rights. And very often that lack of attention actually involves a lot of violence, and so people can't wait anymore because literally your life is, is on the line, and so people flee. But I still see the same kind of tendencies happening in Australia because when we talk about any issues that people have been forcibly displaced experience, um, we kind of don't go down the track of explaining, so what are the specific issues for LGBTIQ people or where they're more at risk of violence even when they are in this kind of a safe um, space? And what about if LGBTIQ person also has a disability? You know, we, we kind of don't go down that uh, very nuanced conversation. So we see our um, unique role in actually unpacking that intersectionality and discussing how one's gender identity, sexual orientation, intersex status actually creates for them different barriers um, to access services or support or to actually, you know, finally enjoy the human rights in Australia. I know it's only just in the early days of its inception, but I look forward to hearing more about this. It sounds incredible. I love the way that it's inclusive and diverse So let's talk about some of the activities you've been already running through the Forcibly Displaced People's Network. And especially, I'm interested in the work done in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So in this time of global spatial and mobility restrictions placed upon all of us as a response to COVID-19, there are impacts on all people in so-called Australia. However, what are the more specific impacts that affect LGBTIQA plus people seeking asylum? Um, in relation to COVID, since the since the pandemic was starting, I think what we've seen that any existing sort of pre-existing inequality and discrimination was actually really heightened during the pandemic. And it was happening in multiple ways. So, for example, if you think of a day-to-day life where LGBTQ people seeking asylum may have barriers to accessing services because either there is some sort of discrimination happening or because when you come from the backgrounds where you've been constantly discriminated and and judged and it's really difficult for people to to build those trust relationships with with places that are sort of authority like you know organizations or police or stuff like that so during the pandemic that situation really heightens we saw a lot of people obviously as you know regardless of who you are losing the jobs for lgbtq people seeking asylum um the differences were in the fact that as any other asylum seekers they are on bridging visas and um, it is really difficult to find employment on a bridging visa because it gets to be seen as this very temporary um, visa that can sort of you know run out at any point in time. Of course, there are also challenges, you know, um, whether you're a trans person and with your documents and, you know, some employers who are really uninformed and do not want to employ people. And then there was a general reduction sort of, of employment opportunities. Um, a lot of LGBTIQ people seeking asylum are not eligible for Medicare. Um, and so in situations before when they, um, you know, 
were able to work and had any specific medical needs, for example, as trans people and access to hormones, they were able to cover that. Now there was no jobs anymore. Uh, people seeking asylum are not eligible for any government income support. And so for many that meant that they cannot meet their health needs um, at all. So what we were doing is we were sort of trying to do two things. Um, one is contribute to advocacy efforts. We were also sending the letters explaining this very distinct risks and vulnerabilities for LGBTIQ people um, and we send those letters to relevant ministers in the social services space and home affairs department and we were also contributing to the nationwide campaign run by the Refugee Council of Australia and many others trying to make sure that people on the range of temporary visas were given access to any sort of income support and Medicare to be able to support them um, during this very precarious time. And simultaneously with that, we ran a crowdfund campaign to be able to provide some financial assistance to people. Because we were hearing these experiences, like one of the, um, the, the persons who we met at the Queer Displacements Conference, he had a work injury, and so it took him a time out of work to heal and then COVID pandemic happened and his shift was one of the first ones to be completely cut. And so he had no money literally to be able to pay rent. We have people who live in regional areas like regional New South Wales and Victoria where access to NGOs in general is really limited. So anything happens in terms of your employment, you have no one to go and get you know, food or some existence to cover your rent. We've had people here in ICT who had no phone credit to be able to call an NGO and ask for some you know, food from the food bank and also had no money to even um, for a bus ticket to go directly to that NGO and to get something for them to eat. And then, you know, as the social isolation restrictions were tightening, for example, all of the public spaces like public libraries get to be closed so people can't even go and use the Wi-Fi um, for free to be able um, to stay in touch. So, um, and then there was a number of trans people who, who required continuous access, of course, to the medication that they use, a woman who is pregnant and is due to give birth next month. So there's a lot of different cases and most of these people they're either not clients of any organizations at the moment who can support them, but even sometimes when they are, organizations themselves do not have any funding for the income support. And so um, very often, um, you know, whether prejudices or anything else, people just miss out. And with the crowdfund at the moment, we were able during last month to support I think about 14 people with um, expenses like rent, groceries, phone credit, and medical. And so we're still running the crowdfund, hoping to be able to do another round, sort of for another month um, later in the mid-May. But also, um, you know, we're occasionally getting queries in between from other people who find out and who require some sort of assistance to literally be able to survive at this moment. You mentioned in one of your previous answers in relation to the intersections that occur within LGBTIQA plus uh, spaces, and especially in relation to um, access to healthcare, access to services, and now access to NGO services. So let's just unpack that a bit more and discuss this concept of intersectional analysis, especially in the terms of accessibility and also as an issue in relation to classism and gender identity. And there's many more intersections, but 
How does that apply in this particular case? I think a lot of people understand intersectionality in a very simplistic way, thinking that it is only about intersection of your identity. So for example, you know, you've got gender, you've got age, sexuality, whatever. For me, intersectionality highlights those different identities and experiences that we have, and then how those ones show me the power that exists in the world. People do not understand that intersectionality is on one hand about this, but on another hand, this intersection of different identities and experiences actually highlights to us in what circumstances we have privilege and in what circumstances we're actually deprived of that privilege and, and uh, we are discriminated or you know, the barriers to different services and support is exacerbated even more because of that intersection, because it highlights that power from people to be able to decide what you need, to be able to decide on your access to spaces. Um, the other thing which is about that idea of class, and I think the whole question of um, elitism, the more, I guess, we develop the understanding of intersectionality, the more it highlights for me that neither in service provision nor in policy, we can no longer imagine that there is a very generic, a mainstream figure of that client, whoever that is who, who we're writing policy for or doing the services. Um, we can't anymore be guided by this one-size-fits-all approach because actually it doesn't. And I think, you know, in even in the context of LGBTIQ asylum, in some cases, you know, you've got the privilege and in other cases you're still discriminated against. And I think it's up to services to be actually really responsive and making sure that they adopt that client-centered approach to working with you, that they recognize your needs, that even... In, in your impossibility sometimes to tell to them that you are queer, right? So they need to be able to provide you with a service or with the list of all available services that when you look, be like, okay, you know, I'm queer. I didn't tell you, but I see this service. So this was applicable to me. I'm going to choose it because what happens at the moment sometimes feels like unless you disclose who you are, they will be also guided by some kind of unconscious bias and they're going to tell you, okay, we think you have to do this. And I think that comes back to that stuff that it's not, not going to just work for everyone. What people understand is sectionality in some ways. Trying to impose the way how they want to support us on us and they want us to be grateful and all this stuff. So what people like shaping our intersectionalities and experiences and how they will provide the support services. With Aslan, we discussed during the panel uh, at the Queer Displacement Conference, and he said that sometimes he was treated as a, um, as a refugee while he actually was a service provider in the position of the service provider. And at the same time, because I'm white passing, I had another opposite experience. I was as a, a person who came to get service from refugee organization, and I was treated as a white person who is like working and who came to the training to help these refugees, you know, like all in quotation marks. So, um, and I think the, the biases in refugee spaces, who can be a refugee, what type of color, how you can come to Australia, by which reasons they are very, very strong in these spaces. 
Really good answer. And how can people or how should people get into contact with you both? And also, are there any calls for actions happening in the near future that listeners should be aware of? I think at the moment, in light of the COVID pandemic, there are two important things to do. One, um, if you check out Refugee Council of Australia campaign called Nobody Left Behind, it draws the attention for the need for people seeking asylum to be able to access income support and Medicare. So they've got a template of letters um, to MP on their website. So we ask you to um, send a letter to your local member um, about the access to income support for people seeking asylum but also to write a few lines about specific risks and barriers that LGBTIQ people seeking experience during this time to make sure that, you know, we are very um, nuanced and intersectional in that conversation. If you are able to support our crowdfund so we can provide that vital financial assistance to people, it'll be really appreciated. You know, every single dollar that we raise goes towards um, people supporting their survival um, at this time. If people want to get in touch with us, whether that's for media inquiries or collaboration or LGBTIQ people seeking asylum or refugees currently in Australia, you can send us an email to queersisterhood at gmail.com. We're also with Renee on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So if you Google our names or Queer Sisterhood Project, you'll be able to find us. And that was my conversation with Tina and Renee Dixon, PhD candidates and activists for LGBTIQA plus refugee and asylum seeker rights, both with a lived experience as queer refugee women, speaking about their advocacy and research work and their current and upcoming projects supporting queer refugee and asylum seekers. You can learn more about their work advocacy and projects via the following. Follow Tina via the Twitter handle TN Dixon, Renee via the Twitter handle Renee underscore Dixon and via reneedixon.com.au or contact Tina and Renee via queersisterhood at gmail.com. For information on the Queer Sisterhood Project, search for Queer Sisterhood via Facebook and Instagram. Information on the Canberra Statement can be found at Tina Dixon com.au forward slash Canberra hyphen statement. The Queer Displacements Conference Report is out now. You can view and search for it via tinadixon.com.au under the title Queer Displacements. The Refugee Council of Australia has information on ensuring people seeking asylum and refugees are included in COVID-19 strategies so that nobody is left behind. View this information via refugeecouncil.org.au forward slash priorities hyphen COVID hyphen 19. The brochure being queer and refugee contains 30 tips for service providers for inclusive service provision. To download the brochure, head to tinadixon.com.au forward slash queer hyphen sisterhood hyphen project. To donate to the crowdfunding campaign to help LGBTIQA plus asylum seekers survive COVID-19, go to chuff.org forward slash project forward slash queer hyphen refugees hyphen and hyphen COVID. And for information on the Forcibly Displaced People Network, the first organisation in Australia to dedicate its work to the issues of LGBTIQA plus forced displacement, head to facebook.com forward slash fdpn dot LGBTIQ. I'll place these resources on Queer in the Air's webpage show notes later today. Thank you to Tina and Renee Dixon 
for taking the time to speak with me about their work and advocacy for LGBTIQA plus refugee and asylum seeker rights. Queering the Air wishes them ongoing support and solidarity in their continued activism. If the content in today's show has been a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1-800-184-527 or switchboard.org.au, Queerspace on 03-9663-6733 or queerspace.org.au or contact your state-based service. That was MV from Queer in the Air, speaking with Tina and Renee Dixon, who are activists for forcible displacement of queer refugees. You can listen to the full interview with Tina and Renee Dixon on the Queer in the Air 3CR page at 3cr.org.au slash Queering the Air. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. This is Flora Carbo, one of my favourites at the moment, and it's called Voice. Thank <laughs> you. 
And that's our Monday breakfast show for this week. Thanks for joining us. A big thank you to all our guests today. We'll be back with you next week. But until then, you can tune into 855 and listen to our other wonderful 3CR breakfast teams on every morning.